if you would open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3, and if, uh, but Genesis chapter 3. Well, last night I got home from the, the men's retreat uh, after 11 or 11.30 or so, and uh, it was a good time. We just had fantastic weather out there in East Texas at, in Pine Cove, and it was just a great time to see all these guys come together. We had about 37 guys come together, both old and young. And one picture of it got that oldness and that youngness together was uh, at, at one point as the guys were arriving to the retreats, up came this young man in this sporty red BMW with a convertible. And in the other seat was this older man, uh, Dave Shoopy, if you guys know him, uh, somewhere older. I'm not going to say his age or whatever in case I'm wrong. But it was so sweet to see this sports car coming up, and there, there's Dave Shoopy inside this uh, convertible. It was a great picture. You have this young guy and this, this old guy. But we had a, a good time there. Uh, I actually got on a zip line for the first time in my life. It looks great when you're looking up there. Then you get up on top. Oh, man. That wind's blowing. It's shaking. Then, they, then that, that point where they go from putting on one thing to the, actually the real deal, you're gonna like, it's, that's like, Lord, don't let a gust of wind come by now. All right? And then they have you sit down on that thing. I was attached to that thing. I, I got, this is how I got down off that seat to get to the lower level. I just started going like this. And I kept my arms on there. It's like, dude, it's okay to let go now. And so I got on there. And then there's that point where they say, I'll just lean forward and you'll fall off. Yeah, right. You're just waiting for eternity for that thing to catch. And so it was scary. But there was the best part of this retreat was this. They had this thing called Big Boy Toys. Yeah. Just go with it with me. Big Boy Toys. We got down there. There's big John Deere tractors. Big scoopers on it. And they had these things with these long arms. I don't even know what to talk to. Dig holes and stuff like that. And uh, so uh, when the John Deere woke, opened up, me and Todd Patolsky started making our way. And uh, we ran to this. Uh, we didn't really run. We walked there. But uh, inside we were running, and we got on this John Deere tractor, and he took dirt from one side and put it on the other side, and I got on and removed his dirt and put it back where it belonged, and it went on. But the funniest thing that I, that I saw was this older fellow who was on the John Deere before us. He actually got off and got on this big thing with a big hook. You know, you can scoop and dig dirt and stuff. And that brother was on there from the time we got on. And then we went back. We were waiting for other people that were still going. And that older gentleman was still on that thing, just digging away. He was like in his own world, just going back and forth, moving dirt from one spot to another spot. And it went remind me, as I looked out and I saw that man and I saw all these other men, it was like a big, giant sandbox. Big, giant sandbox with these grown men and their toys. It was a great time. It, it really was. And... Uh, so some of you guys are later, just ask them, how, how was the sandbox? You know, your ladies that the men, how did you fund the sandbox this time? But uh, we're going to talk from Genesis three uh, this morning. Before I get into that, though, there's a there's a there's something in the air. There's a there's a mess out there. There's a there's there's problems. And I've got people coming to me that they've got uh, tears coming down in their eyes. They've got uh, big, puffy eyes, and their, their eyes have gone red. I've got people that come to me that their, their noses are running, and they're, they're getting up in the mornings, and they're, they're throwing fits. They're having kind of almost convulsions. That was me this morning. As they come, and as they keep on coughing and coughing. And see, this wasn't how God designed us to work in, in, in Genesis chapter 2, but things have gotten messed up. 
And so you've got guys walking around the men's retreat with uh, tissue paper stuck up their noses and, and just things kind of flowing that you don't want to see. And they're having problems. They can't even really hear you real well because their ears are stopped up. They can't communicate real well because they're, they're, they're having problems with congestion. There's something in the air. It's causing problems with how we were originally designed. It's called allergies, particularly cedar. Cedar's causing problems. I can hear it in this morning from you all. There's something else in the air. Actually, there's something in us. God designed us to function in a particular way in Genesis chapter 2. But there's a mess that's happening in people's lives. People come to me and they're crying. Their eyes are red. Communication isn't happening because uh, things are distorted and things that they're hearing aren't really what they what the person is trying to say. And they can't talk to each other because there's congestion within their lives. There's problems in our marriages. It's not an allergy. It's something called sin. Let me just put it to you. It's sin. Not cedar, but sin. In my short time of doing ministry, I have found that all marriage problems, and I know there's all, they're complex and all those things, but they come back to one thing. They come back to sin, folks. Just trust me on this. They come back to sin. And they cause problems. They cause us not to operate how God designed for us to operate inside marriage. And we're going to look at this this morning. We're going to turn as we look to Genesis chapter 3. Remember, as we turn from Genesis 1 and as we covered Genesis 2 last week, we talked about what is the, the primary purpose of marriage. Do you remember? What is the primary purpose of marriage? That's when you come back to me. What is it? Glorify God. Thank you. The primary purpose. Marriage is primary and first and foremost. It's theological. It's about the glory of God. And God, in, in essence, He has created us to uh, represent Him, to be in relationship with Him, and to represent Him and to glorify Him in our marriage. And you say, how do you know that? Because well, if you go from Genesis 1 where it says we're creating His image and His likeness, and you go to Genesis chapter 2, He ordains the institution of family and marriage. He does, it was a divine design, was marriage. And He created it in such a way, and He laid down foundational principles such as we're to leave, that there's to be no other primary relationship or human relationship in your life other than your spouse. You're to cleave, that is, there's to be permanence and commitments within your marriage. Then three, there is to be this, this, this developing of this oneness where, yes, we're distinct people, we have different skills and abilities and personalities, but we come together bringing those distinctions and we operate as one, as a team. And then when you have those things such as leaving and permanence and you have oneness, then it develops an atmosphere where you can have real intimacy within your relationship with your spouse. Where you can literally be naked and not ashamed. Because you know that person has made you the primary human relationship. You know that person is committed to developing oneness in your life. And you know that, that, that then, at that point, that that's a person you can begin to open up to. 
and share your vulnerabilities in the areas that are seen most different from each other. It's a great plan. And then comes Genesis chapter 3. The allergy called sin comes. It doesn't erase this design, but it defaces the design that God has for marriage. Now let's dig into this and look at this together. And we're going to start in verse 1. And we're going to start where, where, where in verse 1 it says, Now the serpent was more crafty. Crafty carries the idea of being wary, knowing where to, uh, where the traps lay, where the, the dangers lurked. lurked. It's the serpent was, was crafty in that way. He was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord had made. It's the serpent. I remember on one of our vacations, we have a habit, and, and when we go to vacation, we go to South Carolina and meet the rest of our family. We have this tradition where we, we do this thing where we have this... Uh, um, each of us does something that we're real good at. What do you call that competition? Uh, I forget what it's called. Talent contest. Thank you, Elizabeth. It w- I went blind. We have a little talent contest amongst the cousins. And my talent, Uncle Matt's talent is always sleep on the couch. Okay? That's my talent. But I remember many years ago when Madeline was three, we kind of got done. And all of a sudden we were having also kind of a little devotional time together. And all of a sudden, Madeline just decides to get this little devotion and, and she starts going and she starts saying, she starts telling us a story and she goes, and she had this little voice at three years old and she says, there was this lizard and this, this lizard, this lizard did this and this lizard and this lizard lied. We're like, what? Matt, what are you talking about? We're looking at each other. What are you talking about? No, there was this lizard in the Bible and, and he, he lied. And he was mean, and there was this lizard. And all of a sudden it hit us. Oh, you're talking about Genesis chapter 3. You're talking about the serpent. Well, this serpent here is not a lizard. It comes in the form of a snake, but it's, it's Satan. And Satan, who has rebelled against God, wants to do everything he can to destroy the image and the likeness of God. And so Satan comes as this crafty serpent puts himself in disguise and he comes and he begins to tell lies to Eve. And look what he says to her. And he said to the woman, indeed, you can almost feel the skeptical tone that's in these words. Indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from the tree of the garden? Indeed. Has God said that? I mean, is it really true, Eve, that God said such a thing? Did He really say you must not eat of any tree in the orchard? Is that what He said? So what, what He does, what Satan does, is His first attack is to go straight for the very Word of God. He wants to attack that truth. He wants to get in there and he, in his desire to have dominion and to destroy the image and likeness of God, he wants to come along and he wants us to make us doubt what God's Word says. It calls doubt in our lives. He's seeking us to also doubt what God has said about marriage. It happens all the time. As I meet people and see people, God doesn't really say that. Come on. 
That's just impractical that we stay committed to each other. Oh, you mean I really have to be, I mean to develop and I need to, to, to create this oneness with my, yeah, you do. You need to work together. I mean, you really want me to have intimacy and, and vulnerability just beyond the, yeah, yeah. God's Word does. But doubts come and, nah, that's, that's, that's not the way it runs. That's what he does here with the woman. Look what he does here. He says, the woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. Or the woman said this to the serpent, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. Now, we can go through this real quick, but there's some subtleties in there. Some subtleties that start happening to Eve here. And the first one is this, is that Eve begins, it's ever so slight, you don't see it because you really have to go back and you have to compare it to Genesis chapter 2, verse 16. But Eve begins to minimize God's provision. Because what God really said, she says, from the fruit of the trees of garden we may eat, But what God really said, from any tree of the garden, you may eat freely. It's as if she takes the adjective off of it. It's as if, you know, maybe this isn't as good as God has laid it out there for us. And so you see the subtle change in her. But notice this. Not only does she minimize the provision, she begins to also add to the prohibition. Because she says, from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. God didn't say that. God said from he, he didn't say you couldn't touch it. He said, just don't eat of it. It's as if sometimes what we like to do is we like to, to make what God's Word, God's Scripture seem a little more harsher than it really is. A little more unrealistic than it is. God, it's just not possible really to have the, the commitments and the oneness that you're talking about. That's just that's unrealistic, God. You mean I have to be bound up in this, this commitment with this ball and chain? That's harsh, God. What about me and my happiness? And again, let me take a segue here. I realize there are opportunities and there are times when on the part of one person, the hardness of their heart leads to certain things. And I believe in God's grace where marriages have failed. But let's go back to the root of this and see what's happening here. Because something else occurs. If you notice, not only does she minimize the provisions and adds to the prohibition, but she also weakens the consequences. Notice, you shall not eat from it or touch or you will die. Now, when you, you don't notice that, but when you compare that with Genesis 2, verse 16, where the phrase, you will die, there are two different, uh, different uh, verbs that are used there. One, when, when, when it's stated in the original, in Genesis 2, verse 16, it is stated in a very emphatic, infinitive, uh, infinitive form where it says, you shall surely die. There's no doubt about it. Yes, it says, when God says this, hey, if you eat of this, you shall surely die. Well, her language begins to weaken it and minimize it, and she begins to just say, you will die, or some of your translations, lest you die. And there's almost a hint of, maybe you're right, Satan, or serpent, or lizard. 
Maybe you're right. Yeah, maybe he really won't do that. Maybe he really won't die. I have a quote from Alan P. Ross that says, When we weaken the original command, the appeal to sin grows stronger. When we weaken God's commands, the appeal to sin grows stronger. It does. Satan picks up on Eve's weakening of the word, and look what he says. He, he catches it. He catches the tone. He catches the doubts. And he says, the serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. Look at that. See how he made that inroad? Just a little door was open and in he slipped and reinterprets what God's word says. He takes that doubt and he turns and he, he makes another whole statement opposite of God by just changing one word. Matter of fact, he's emphatic about you surely will not die. Verse 5 says, he goes on, For God knows that in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. This is the most alluring temptation that Satan gives in effects marriages. It's this idea that you can be God yourself. That you can set the standards and you can set the designs for your life. It's this temptation to step away from God and act independently of God. You want to know what sin is? A real definition of what sin is? Sin is this. It's to act independently of God. People ask, well, what is evil? Or where did it come from? It came from the, when the moment the person stepped away from God. To act independent of God is sin. And therefore, it has made its way down as we have all made our choices to act independently of God in our lives. And this happens all the time in marriage. And a point you want to make, well, why are you going? What does this have to do with marriage, Matt? I want to make a very clear point to you, and I want you to understand this. To have the kind of marriage that God calls for and designed for we cannot do it independence of God. It's not possible. It doesn't work without God. We were created to be in His likeness that we might be in relationship with Him. We were created in His image that we might represent Him. Therefore, for us to live this out, we need to be in relationship with God. And we need to, in order for us to represent Him well and to glorify Him. Therefore, sin is independence from God. Now, my big question is, as we go on, as we read here in verse 6, it says, when the woman saw, and follow along with me, when the woman saw that the tree was good for evil, and just write down 1 John 2, verse 16, and compare this later. You'll find some interesting comparisons. But it says, when, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, you just saw the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. And by the way, wisdom only comes from God, real wisdom. She took from its fruits and she ate and she gave it also to her husband with her and he ate. Here's my question. 
What was Adam doing the whole time? Where was the brother? I haven't heard a squeak out of him yet. Where was Adam? Guys, I want you to listen up right now. This is, this is for you guys, okay? And ladies, no poking or pushing on your man, all right? You should be praying for him. If you go back to Genesis chapter 2, who did God give the command to not eat? To eat? Thank you, Jan. Who did God give to the command to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of the good of evil? Who wasn't created yet? Eve. God entrusted Adam with his word. Now, what I'm about to say doesn't mean a woman should not be a spiritual leader in certain capacities. It's not about equality. It's about a function that God has designed. But guys, listen up. In God's original design, God created for man to be the spiritual leader in the home. It is us as men. And that doesn't mean that we don't make use of our, our wives' great skills and our wives' great wisdom and talents to minister spiritually to our children. But it is us guys who ought to be the spiritual leaders in the homes. It is us guys who ought to be leading with the Word of God, helping and supporting our wife up to lead her children spiritually. That's convicting. I know it is, guys. I'm convicted. I don't do it enough. Don't let conviction drive you away. Don't let your shame right now or your guilt drive you away. Let it drive you to the grace of God at this very moment. And allow Him to pick you up and to continue to transform you and make you the man of God He desires for you to be. Amen. Amen, ladies. You pray for these guys. You respect these guys. Adam dropped the ball. I'm thinking, where is this guy who just, just the chapter before, remember last week when God betrothed the woman to him and he brings his wife to him and he, he sees her and he's all like, yes, at last. Woman. Chapter 3. There's Eve. He went passive. My thought is, what, what, what was going through? I mean, why, why didn't he just like, I mean, here's this serpent. Why didn't he not just pick up, got, got the biggest garden hoe he could find, jump in the middle and say, get away from my woman. That's my woman. God betrothed her to me. You're telling lies. Why didn't he do that? Other than he didn't have garden hoes yet. He went passive. He started to go independent of God too. I, I don't know. I've heard this suggested. I can't say this is, is true. But do you think in, in mind that he was just saying that maybe he was doubting the Word of God too? Maybe, maybe, God, maybe God really won't kill us. Tell you what, Eve, you go ahead and you try the fruit. 
Let me see what's going to happen. Hey, she's all right. Yeah, give me the apple or whatever the fruit is. He went passive. You know what I call that? It's not, it's not just sin, but it's sinful self-interest. Because see, when we start to walk independent of God, we become more focused on ourselves, And we get absorbed in our own self-interest. What's the greatest command? Christ summed it up. To love the Lord thy God with all our heart, with all our mind, with all our soul, with all our strength. Glorify God. What's the second? To love thy neighbor as thyself. The moment that we walk independence of our purpose and our plan to glorify God, when we step away from that, we are down on downhill slide to sinful self-interest where we no longer care and love our neighbor. That's why, guys, marriage, we have to keep the glory of God preeminent. In our lives, or we fall down to this sinful self-interest in our lives, and it becomes a disaster. Well, verse 7. Those are some barriers. The barriers of, of sin, independence from God. The barrier of sinful self-interest, independence from God's design for oneness or or that teamness. It was no longer about we, but it became about Adam's eye. And then verse 7 says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened. Their understanding. That is, their the eyes has to do with understanding. And they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Why did they do that? Why did they make loin coverings and put them over their eyes? Because it was their eyes that were, you know, that's what saw the fruits. Or why did they put like make uh, little mittens of leaves and put them over their hands? Because it was their hands that that grabbed the fruit. Why didn't they do that? Instead, they, they cover themselves up in the, in the word, uh, the Hebrew word behind it gives the idea of a girdle or a sash or a belt. And so we know where the place that they cover themselves was that, that the private area and the place where there was most difference in their life. place of most difference in their life. Because see, when they stepped away from God, when they stepped away from this loving of, of thy neighbor, the place where they're most different, but yet they had the, this, this, the greatest possible place of physical intimacy. And I know there's also emotional intimacy and all these other things that come with it. It was in that place then that they both became to feel vulnerable to each other. And that shame and that, that fear of, of perhaps what was going on in their minds is, I'm not the same as him and he's not the same as... Or, they, they're, we're different here. What, what is she going to think of me or what is he going to think of me? Is he, is he going to accept me who, how I was? And for what, what, what how God has given me? And so the shame, this fear sets in and then what happens is, is this alienation begins, this withdrawal begins... And then slowly what happens over time is there's a loss of intimacy. And you all know it. That in your lives, there's places in your life that you that because of sin, you're afraid to become open to that, that person that you're to be closest to. 
because of shame and guilt in your life. And this is where the gospel of Jesus Christ is so important. Because ultimately you will never find the, the, the freedom and the intimacy you really desire, even in your spouse. We, we, we try with the power of the Spirit in our lives. But ultimately you've got to rest in your, in your significance and who you are in God. That's where you find your ultimate security. And when you do that, when you find your security in God and in Christ Jesus, then that allows you to even be more vulnerable with the person that you love. Knowing that ultimately I am always accepted by God through Jesus Christ. But what I want you to see is that what's happening here, if you go to Genesis 2, you go from leaving to cleaving to oneness to intimacy. Notice what's happening now. You go from intimacy is lost, but then it goes on. Look at verse, verse 8. He goes on and says, They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. Now there's even, see, there's even shame and guilt before God. They go together. Loving God with our hearts, loving thy neighbor. They hid from the presence among the trees of the garden. And then the Lord God called to the man. And he said to him, where are you? Now, God doesn't have to ask that, does he? But God does that as an act of grace. He's trying to set us up for an opportunity to confess. Come clean with him. God uses questions like that in your life. Maybe He's using those questions right now. He said, I, I heard the sound of you. I heard the sound of you in the garden. This is Adam. And I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. That's why you got to go back and get things restored with God. Kent Hughes writes, fear and shame and flight are the incurable stigmata of the fall. We only begin to deal with them when God says, where are you? You notice, I want you to notice a picture of grace in here. Adam and Eve did not go searching for God, did they? God went searching for Adam and Eve. That's God's grace, folks. He comes after us and searches after us and says, where are you? And right now, some of you, he's saying, where are you in your marriages? I want you to come to me. So I've got answers for you. I've got power for you to, to overcome this. He's asking you questions even right now. Notice though in verse 11, chapter 3, and he said, who told you that you were naked? Again, God knew this. It's a rhetorical question. Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Again, God's grace. Then the man said, oh, did the man say, and this is a long line of things that men have said. The man said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, or I'm sorry, and the man said, I, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. Come on, Adam. What were you thinking? Probably us guys do the same thing. All the time. He blames it on, Adam, on Eve. 
And he's going to have to live with this woman for another 930-some years. At least that's how long he lives. I hope they got some marital counseling. Because she wasn't going to forget it, was she? We do this. This blame and avoidance leads to self-protection. That's what Adam's doing. He's trying to protect himself. It spurs up in me all the time. Just this week, before I left for the men's retreat, uh, Elizabeth asked me, would you remove this mirror? Because we're having our bathroom uh, remodeled. And uh, so I'm taking off this, this mirror. It's a big, huge mirror. And I've taken other ones off before, even bigger than that. And I'm pulling it off. And it's got, you know, it's got this ledge that it's on. I'm sliding it out. I'm sliding it out. And then it gets to this point, and all of a sudden, and it, yeah, exactly. And this part broke. But inside of me, yeah, you know where I'm going. Inside of me welled up, all right? I, by God's grace, it didn't come out, okay? But it welled up. I'm thinking, why weren't you holding it? That's the one inside. I didn't say this, all right? Why weren't you holding that? Couldn't you see I'm taking a mirror out? Why did you do that? That was a temptation. You know, Eddie, right? Yeah, you're there. You're with me. And we do that. Sadly, we let it out. All kinds of marriage problems. People come in and tell me, well, if he would do this or if she would do that. Yeah, well, what aren't you doing? Huh? I realize that. And I know sometimes there's bigger problems than any other person. But quit the blaming. And I want to ask you, well, when he does that or when she does that, how are you responding to that? In the spirit or in your flesh? Quit blaming. Quit trying to protect your own self up to make your own self look good. Because what happens is this blame and avoidance, it just goes on. The Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the servant deceived me and I ate. So she blames it on him. She needs to take ownership in her sin. But this, 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 this leads to a blame and avoidance and self-protection, which leads to the breakdown of this oneness. What Adam should have done, which we should do, is that we should step up and take ownership for our part of it and lead our spouses to repentance as we repent. Quit being so prideful, Matt. Talking to myself. Quit trying to protect your own rep. We all have some ownership in it. And they all did. Well, out of this came the fall. Now this fall came curses. If you jump down to verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain, you'll bring forth children. And here's what I want us to focus on. We can't focus on everything. Yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Now, that sounds a little bit benign there at, the, at first. But when you study this and you dig in and you understand what this word desire means, it's kind of debated, but what it really carries with you, and particularly because you see it used in Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, where it refers to sin's desire to control Cain. It's used the same, same word there for sin's desire to control Cain. You realize that this is a part of the curse, and this is a negative thing. 
And that what, what was a fallout of the curse, instead of having what God had designed, there's going to be this temptation and this falling towards where a woman is going to want to control her man. Okay? And then, when you look at this, yet your desire will be for your husband, all right? And then he will rule over you. This is not a positive sense of rule or leadership, okay? It's the idea of, of, of it's, it most often carries a harsh tense to it. It's the idea of lording over or mastering over or having dominion over. And so all down through the ages, what we've had and what we have to this day is we have this control on a woman's part. And she does it in all kinds of ways. OK, it doesn't have to be large, loud. You know, it can be very subtle, passive aggressiveness. It tries to control her husband. And then you got this husband over here who goes away from every concept of biblical leadership and tries to have dominion over his wife. And we've had that classic battle going on and on and on. And this, I want to tell you something first of all. Male domination. Let me just make this real clear. All right. Male domination. And I'm using someone else's thought on this. Let me just quote it because it's better this way. Male domination is a personal moral failure, not a teaching of the Bible. And there's a great difference between leadership and male domination. Male domination is a personal moral failure. It's as as someone, the same person quoted, it's like uh, little boys trying to be men. That's what male domination is. Biblical leadership is Christ-like leadership. A woman wants to submit to her husband because a man's leading like Christ. He's serving. He's loving her. He's cherishing her. And yes, he's pointing out and he's making decisions when a decision needs to be made. But he does it like Christ. And the woman, you're nagging, I'm going to put it that way, your passive aggressiveness attempts to force your husband to do things, that's control. It doesn't fall into the model as uh, Ephesians 5 talks about the husband is to love his wife and the wife is to respect her husband. It's not respectful. So what do both of us need to do? We need to repent every time we get tempted to do that or we begin to do that. Because this cult control and domination leads to conflict, which leads to the erosion of our commitment. So what's the answer? I want to know, I want you to know, and I don't have time to go into this, but the blueprints of how to restore this and get back to this can be found there in Genesis 3, verse 15. There's a, prom- there's a prophecy there. It's very veiled. It's, it's, it's implied, but it talks about uh, someone whose heel is going to be bruised, but that person who bruises that heel, their head is going to be crushed. I believe it's talking about Christ crushing the head of Satan through his death, his burial, and his resurrection. But also, if you go down to Genesis chapter 3, you will notice that the Lord God, He clothed them with animals. 
Fig leaves wouldn't do because something, a payment needed to be made. Uh, there had to be a shedding of blood to cover the sin. That was just a foreshadow of what Christ was going to do. And so when we get to the New Testament, we say, well, what is the answer to this? What do I have to do? Well, the New Testament says we're new creatures in Christ. And if you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 through 21, Christ speaks of how we are new creatures in Christ. The old has gone and we have been made new. And now we've been given the ministry of reconciliation because Christ was a reconciler. That is, God, that is, God through Jesus Christ brought once again peace with ourselves and with God. That is, we were at enmity. We were enemies of God because of our sin and because of how holy God is. But through Jesus Christ, He loved us and He brought us back together. He reconciled us with Him. And we've been given the ministry of reconciliation. We're to share that with others. But where, most importantly, should the ministry of reconciliation take place? In our homes. If God's message of reconciliation can save you from hell and from your sins and eternal separation from God, don't you think that His message of reconciliation, the gospel, can save your marriage from destruction? The answer to our problem of Genesis 3 is the gospel of Jesus Christ, folks. Don't let that just change you and for eternity, but let it change us in our relationships with all people. May we live as new people in Christ. Second, the second thing is now walk in the Holy Spirit. When He gave us a new identity, He also gave us His Holy Spirit to empower us. Because you're, you're thinking, Matt, I, okay, I have a new identity, but I, I just cannot love this person. It is hard. I can't head for this leaving, this cleaving, this, this commitment, this oneness, and this intimacy. I know you can't. That is, if you want to once again glorify God, you have to let God through you and His Holy Spirit to enable you to do such. I want to show you something here real quickly. I want to show you how practical this is because we need the Holy Spirit in our lives. I have a chart I want to show you. It's a kind of an anatomy of conflict. And my question to you is, will you walk in the Spirit or will you walk in the flesh? To walk in the Spirit means this. I think I have it in your sheet. To walk in the Spirit, as it says in Galatians 5.16, means we walk by the Spirit as we live moment by moment in submission to and dependence on the Holy Spirit rather than ourself. It's, it's walking moment by moment in submission to God and His Word and in dependence upon the Holy Spirit rather than ourselves. So, for instance, let's take this to the area of, of conflict. And so we have this conflict. And what comes? And, and get, guarantee you, conflict comes to marriages. It's going to come, all right? Even for you newlyheds, newlyheds, it's going to come. So conflict comes. And what we have is we have anger. And we have hurt feelings that are up there. And then comes a choice. The choice is this. Will I submit to God? And will I choose to walk with His Holy Spirit empower me? Or will I choose to follow my flesh? If you follow your flesh, you can look in Galatians chapter 5 and see this described for you. This is what will happen. Fleeing, withdrawal. I talked about avoidance. If that continues, then it continues into escalation and further isolation. But if you choose to walk in the Spirit, look what happens when this happens. 
You choose to face the conflict. Did you know Christ talks about us dealing with conflict with our brothers in Christ? Then you come with another choice. You have a choice of the flesh or the spirit once again. The first choice of the flesh is we can fight and we can accuse. We can blame each other for this. Well, it's your fault. You did this. And if we fight and accuse, it leads to escalation of of isolation even further. Or we can choose to walk in the Spirit. And it leads to these things. Invitation to dialogue. Recognizing that, you know what? This is my brother or my sister in Christ. And God tells us we're to work problems out in the church. And we're actually, as marriage, we're we're to model the church. So we need to dialogue and talk with each other. And an invitation of dialogue can lead to these things. Understanding, forgiveness, and sometimes compromise. Right, guys? Compromise. And if we do that, you can have conflict resolved. And guess what? Guess what the Lord does? He does His work of sanctification. And it leads to growth. What if you and I looked at the conflict in our lives as the Holy Spirit's opportunity for us to grow more like Christ. What if we looked at it that way? What if we stopped looking at it as, all right, this is Eve over here and I'm going to blame her and I'm going to win this thing and make myself look good before God and instead humble ourselves, follow the Holy Spirit and through this allow the Spirit to enable us to grow and put the Gospel of Jesus Christ on display. Wouldn't that be awesome? what God desires for you. With the help of the Holy Spirit, as you make your way around this conflict, as you're praying and you're taking step by step, oh, Holy Spirit, let me love this man or love this woman. Help me to manifest your fruit of your spirit to this woman or this man in my life. He will grow you and he will use your conflict to show how he reconciles things through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. This uh, weekend, uh, many of you all have been to Pine Cove before, but I had not been to this particular part of Pine Cove before in my life. And we stayed in the bluffs. And the bluffs are called the bluffs because they're up on a bluff. But everything that took place was down by the lake on a place called the shore. Okay? And so I have my allergies going on too. Okay? Well, to make your way down, there's this hill. And there's this hill that they call Delilah. Okay? I don't know why they gave her such a name like Delilah, you know. It should have been like Edward or something because it was tough, you know. That's not even tough. Edward's not tough, is it? Uh, but there was this hill. And, uh, and, and so after the sessions we'd have, I'd have to make my way back up this hill called Delilah. And so I'm making my way up and all of a sudden, all of a sudden I'm just like... <clears throat> You know, you're just coughing and all this junk's messing up in there. And, and then you start feeling this burn in there. You're like, man, I'm out of shape. You know, I need some help. And then you got guys that they're on their way and they're, they're literally on the side of trees like this. I, I'm kidding. Then you got the smart guys who get around behind slower guys so they can just say, yeah, I'm just taking it easy. You know, they've got the slow folks in front of me. And, uh. But I, when I first did it, well, I, was, I, was, I got at the top and I was just like burning and, and I was a mess. Sometimes marriage looks hopeless. Sometimes marriage looks like a hill called Delilah. 
And there's a mess. You've got obstacles as you, you go through. There's all kinds of barriers, like there's barriers on this hill, Delilah. And sometimes it doesn't even seem like, man, I just can't make it. I can't even breathe. And uh, I just want to go off the path and just kind of roll back down the hill. And, and that's how marriage can be at times. But what if, you see, what I needed uh, going up Delilah is I needed a new set of lungs, okay? I needed a set of a marathon runner's lungs in me. I need a little medicine. I need a little shot of something to clear up my allergies. But what if we looked at the hill and the difficulty of marriage this way? That in essence, we really have been given a, a new pair of lungs. And those lungs are called the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit has now come and has breathed life into us. That we are new creatures in Christ. And though the hill is still there, though the hill is difficult, and though there are barriers there, and there's going to be trails that you want to take back down and away from going up this hill, the Holy Spirit's there to give you the oxygen and give you the power to, to breathe and be able to take on those things. And, and He's going to guide you and direct you in the way that you should go. That you can go up and you can go through that hill of marriage and get back on top of the bluffs. See, because when you get on top of it, you, you feel good. And you feel satisfied. And then you see God's glorious creation in action. You see His gospel in action through the power of His Holy Spirit. And then He's glorified. Dear God, we come and we praise You, Lord. Lord, we thank You and we praise You for Your Word and Your truth. And, uh, Lord, I pray for the marriages here today, that you will heal them, you will restore them, Lord. Help them to apply this truth through life, Lord. And uh, may you be glorified.